Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Praise God. Okay. A few people have asked what time are we finishing today? We're doing it Jamaica style. So we ain't finishing till like five o'clock. Is that all right? <laughs> so that, what was that? With, with another break? We, have, we finish at five for a break. Amen. We'll eat and then we'll, we'll reconvene. <laughs> Praise God. It's a blessing to see what God is doing among us and um, through us. And I say us in a, in a literal sense. Um, you know, we missed Pastor Robbie, Brother Mark, as they went away. And um, it's a blessing to be able to see how the Lord was working. Uh, I know that was just a foretaste, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, let's, let's rejoice. God is at work through his people, the body. And you know, it's funny because even before they came up to share, I just felt so, so moved and so touched by God. We're in here today, the atrium. It's, a, it's quite a nice bright space, but it's terrible sound-wise. And I've just been so encouraged by the way that the teams this morning just descended on the place and had it on lock. You know, it, we only had a delayed start of about 10 minutes and it's a tribute to the work of God among us through his people. And so I salute you, sound team. I salute you. Praise God for your life. Praise team. I salute you. Yeah, man, let's bless them and encourage them. You know, today had the potential of, of having all kinds of drama unnecessarily. And yet, thank God for his grace and just the way that we're able to press on. And it's all down to the dedication of his people. And it was emotional today as we were there just praising God and just considering his goodness. I couldn't help but be touched by the expression of God's goodness through the teams working today. Um, you'd, you'd have to be hard-hearted not to have been touched by the Lord already today. And so um, praise God that we're able to um, be back together in the word. Now, today we're dealing with the doctrine of baptisms. As Pastor P said during the announcements, we're going through the foundation series. I wonder if you could swap that for me, bruv. Um, basically, we've determined to teach through Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, unpacking the foundational principles. We've already had the Bible being the starting point. That's where we preach from. It's what we believe. That's what we stand on. And if necessary, by God's grace, that's what we would die for. And so the Bible is where we started. It's the word of God. It's authoritative. We are to submit to it. Repentance. Huh. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Everyone is in need of repentance. We all exhibit and manifest sin in our lives. And yet, what is real repentance? Um, can anybody remember the contrast between... I am going to ask you to repeat the Greek words. Some of you might have written it down. Between the two different types of repentance that Pastor P mentioned. Say that again. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. A class student right there. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And worldly sorrow can be down to just having a sense of regret. I'm sorry I got caught. That's the only thing you're sorry for. Because if you hadn't got caught, you would have carried on. 
Or it might be remorse. That's another expression of worldly sorrow. Uh, I'm sorry for my consequences and how they've affected someone else. But that's the only thing. If it didn't affect no one else, well, I'll continue doing it. But godly sorrow is when we recognize that what we've done is wrong in the sight of God, that we've sinned against God. And that's true. That's the basis and the heart of true repentance. Um, Pastor Peter went on last week to talk about faith. Faith. I wonder if you... Not just faith in faith. I believe. Yes, I can. I know I can. Yes, I can. I know I can. Yes, we can. Can we really? <laughs> According to the will and plan and purpose of God as expressed through Jesus Christ, we can. And so our faith is in a person who is the creator, who spoke that which is visible out of nothing and has made himself known to us primarily through the person of Jesus Christ only through whom is salvation only through him there's no other way and so today we're looking at baptisms so we go from what you might call technically the doctrine of soteriology or salvation repentance faith in Christ into the doctrines of ecclesiology which is what baptisms and laying on of hands fall under Ecclesia, Greek word for a gathering, assembly, set apart ones, called out ones, being the church. And so we're looking at church life as we come to the issue of baptisms today. Turn with your Bibles to Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, if you would, please. Um, my quotations are generally from the New King James Version. And um, I wonder if we could read those verses together. I wonder if we could read those verses together. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, those of you with your Bible open will see in verse 3, it says, and this we will do if God permits. <laughs> and so we are reliant upon the grace of God to help us mature and grow as we go through these foundational principles. Now, the doctrine of baptisms historically has been a divisive issue. I mean, we saw a glimpse of that reality as we saw the Jamaica report. And so you have those that will believe in baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or those that will baptize in the name of Jesus only, and they're called Jesus-only churches, and they are of the, the conviction that God has not revealed himself in three persons, as Pastor Rob said, but that Jesus is the Father and the Son, and he is the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to get into the, the depth of dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. And maybe we'll touch on that in the church DNA along with tithing. Um, because that was the other thing that <laughs> Pastor Rob ducked when he was in Jamaica. <laughs> in terms of tithing. And just as a, um, a precursor to what you'll hear in church DNA, um, we do not believe in the law of the tithe. We believe that it's biblical to give. We believe that it's actually a, a New Testament requirement of those of us as believers being recognized as priests, as a royal priesthood. 
And so um, giving is biblically mandated. The law of the tithe is not. And if you want to enforce the law of the tithe, then you have to enforce circumcision. You have to enforce a whole heap of other things that I'm sure that enough man don't want to enforce. You understand? So just to lay it out there, because I know some of you kind of went quiet when he ducked that one. And it was like, hmm, yeah, what do you lot believe about tithing, really? And so in case you um, were wondering, and we'll unpack that another time. Praise God. So moving on recognizing it's a historically divisive issue we realize it's worthy of clarification and that really a lot of the issues have arisen over a misunderstanding of baptism due to a poor use of terms oh my days this has really been somewhat of a passion of mine from the time i first studied it like to teach it i don't know four or five years ago and when i really got an insight as to what this thing called baptism is really about it completely changed my view of baptism, completely revolutionized my understanding of church life. It completely revolutionized my understanding even of some common basic texts that we deal with. And so I'm going to encourage you to follow with me in your Bible. By now, you should have a notepad and pen. If you haven't, why not? <laughs> Put it, you know, use your text thing and make notes on your phone. But I'm encouraging you to make notes and order the CDs. <clears throat> the situation is that it's not really as complex as, as it's made out to be. And so, as you can see, I'm on haste. I'm trying to breeze through this without being over hasty. Amen? Because to be over hasty is to sin and miss the market, says in Proverbs. So, <laughs> amen. So today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break it down. Um, if you can swap that for me, please, bro. Thank you. Um, we're going to look at the doctrine of baptisms. What does that mean? Noticing that it's in plural. Um, going to just look at some words briefly. We won't have time to go into it. We're going to consider the act of baptism, the meaning of baptism, believers' baptism, the result of baptism, and responses to baptism. And I know that there are a number of questions ordinarily that would be um, that would come to mind by the time we get to the end of this session and so what I've endeavored to do is try and deal with probably six or seven of the most common questions that come up in relation to baptism as a means of trying to clarify so walk with me we'll get there now with your Bibles open I wonder if you would um, consider Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 and um Put a finger in Acts chapter 1 as well. These are going to be our, our focus scriptures. Uh, I think I might have it on the projector thing there as well. I know it's kind of small, right? So, for what it's worth, if, you got, if you're long-sighted, this one's you. Um, gone up again, bro. Cool, thank you. So, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, the, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen, saith the Lord. Jesus speaking. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. And this is in relation to the expectation of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. 
Jesus promised that the Father would give the Holy Spirit. And so we see Acts chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, let's start unpacking. Doctrine of baptisms. Now, we recognize the term doctrine for those who are unfamiliar to mean a body of clearly authoritative teaching, instruction in Christianity, of which baptism is a fundamental. So that's basically what doctrine means. It seems like it's some kind of mysterious sacred word maybe if you're not familiar with it but it just means authoritative teaching so the authoritative teaching concerning baptisms well let's consider first of all the fact that the word that we have here in our text is plural in Hebrews 6 1 um, in Hebrews 6 2 it's actually plural which is unusual to see the word baptism used in a plural and there's a reason for that, because in the Bible, what we actually see is four baptisms communicated. And there's actually a fifth baptism implied. Now, I'm going to clarify and correct that, but there's more than one type of baptism spoken about in Scripture. And in fact, when we look at the word in Hebrews 6, the word is not the normal word that is used for baptism. The word basically means ceremonial washing. Ceremonial washing. Now, the reason that that word is used is because the apostle... Oh, no, let me take that back. Exposing my convictions. Because, you know, they say that the, um, the writer of the book of Hebrews is unknown. And people have their different convictions. Yeah. So I almost, um, you know, showed you that my conviction is that the Apostle Paul wrote it, but we won't go there right now. The writer of Hebrews said baptisms with regards to ceremonial washings because he was speaking to Jews. And Jews were used to having to cleanse themselves and cleanse their utensils, um, whether it's implements of use in the temple, implements of use in their, in their homes, things that they're using, they were used to having to go through ritual washings or ritual cleansings. They were used to using water in a symbolically significant way. And so as the writer is writing to Jewish people, some of whom are Christians, some of whom are not Christians, but they have a, have a religious background in the law of God. He's just saying, look, you know what, we, let's clarify what the deal is with regard to washings. And really the intention was that the people would have a clear and um, definite understanding as to what was really applicable to them 
as New Testament Christians. What is, with all of the washings that you're used to, so they would have to pull up their sleeves and wash up to the elbows. And before they could touch the, the, the scroll of the book, they had to wash, and they had to go through all kinds of washings. Okay, I'm a Jew. I'm used to doing that. I've become a Christian. What am I suppo- how am I supposed to view the use of water in a spiritual sense? And so, the aim is to clarify. Now, as I mentioned, with regards to the act of baptism, there are four talked about in Scripture. The baptism of Moses, the baptism of John, the baptism with water, and baptism with the Holy Spirit. There are four baptisms clearly stated, and there was also a fifth, which is implied. In certain texts in Scripture, you will see the word proselyte used. And the word proselyte basically means a Gentile, non-Jewish person who was determined to make the God of the Jews their God. And so, in order for that to happen, they had to go through certain things. One of the things was circumcision. (laughs) um, Historians say that's why many men didn't really get down with the Jews and try and get involved. The other thing was baptism. And the third thing was making an offering. And so if a, if a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, wanted to join themselves to the Jewish um, nation and worship the God of the Jews, that's what they had to go through. And so we see that spoken of in the Jewish writings called the Talmud. So at the time when Jesus was speaking, at the time when the apostles were speaking and they were talking about baptism, they, the people would have had the background of these different types of baptisms in mind. Now, one of the first things I want to do, and one of the things that I think is probably most important at this stage, is to clarify the meaning of baptism. Because when we understand the meaning of baptism properly, then the the actual act of baptizing makes more sense. And the terms used make more sense. The meaning of baptism. Now, you may still be at Matthew 28. Jesus said to the disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pause there. Now, what we see in this verse is one of those occasions when it would have been helpful if the Bible translators would have been more specific. You see, I remember growing up facing the dilemma that Pastor Rob talked about that he spoke with Juridian in Jamaica concerning. What name were you baptized in? You baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Baptized in the name of Jesus only? And either way that you answered, whoever you were speaking to, they would normally recommend that you go and get baptized again. So you got baptized in Jesus' name only. That's not enough, you know. That's not sufficient. 
Come to my church. We will baptize you again properly in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? But no. It doesn't go like that. Jesus only. You need to get baptized again. One of the things that argument displays is the fact that people don't really understand the meaning of baptism. And as we look at verse 19 of Matthew 28, we can see why. The translators have kind of let us down. It's a small word, but it makes a big difference. Where Jesus said baptizing them in the name of the Father, it would be better translated as into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Into. And we see this in Acts chapter 19. And I'm going to beg you. I know it's a lot of turning, but I'm going to beg you to turn with me because I want you to see it literally in the page for yourself. Acts chapter 19. The word in the Greek for in is used maybe 1,300 times in the New Testament. And almost 600 of those times is translated into. And we see that when it's used in the context of baptism, almost on every other occasion, it's translated as into. Almost every other occasion. And when it wasn't, it should have been. So Acts chapter 19, let's look at verses 1 to 6. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, notice the word, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Then it goes on to say, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But hold on a minute. We've seen into three times already, but here they've reverted back. It's the same word in the original language, but they've reverted back to in. As in Matthew 28. Let's just keep it as into, because it's more consistent with the meaning of baptism. So it really ought to read like this. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So you notice in that section of verses right there, we had into what then? Into John's baptism. And yet when it came to baptizing them, The translators said that they were baptized in the name when it should have been into. It's the same word on each occasion. When we read Matthew 28, 19, in that light, 
Again, we see how it would read. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you look at it like that, I don't know if you can see with me, that actually gives it a slightly different shade of understanding. The reason being, baptism signified four things in that culture. Whichever baptism you were talking about, it signified four things. It signified an initiation into. That's the first thing. An initiation into. An an identification with it signified a registration and recognition. Basically, it was the rite of passage, the act of introduction into a life of discipleship. Into a life of discipleship that basically meant that the individual was expressing faith in someone as master, committing to submit to their teaching and their lifestyle, taking it as their own. That's what baptism signified in that day. The introductory, introductory act of discipleship. Now, John the Baptist had disciples. We saw that in Acts 19. Jesus had disciples. But you know that discipleship wasn't exclusive to Jesus or to those that preached the gospel. Discipleship was common in that culture. The rabbis were known to have disciples, the Jewish teachers. And a disciple would be one who abandoned his life to follow the words and ways of this particular master. It's a very common thing in Eastern, ancient Eastern cultures. We do see examples of that today in certain contexts. And I wonder if I can um, get the, 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 the karate video, bro. Some of you will remember the film Karate Kid. It's funny because it was actually on television last night. Karate Kid, classic film. And in this film, what we see is a picture of discipleship being expressed. As I said, it was something that was common in Eastern, ancient Eastern cultures including the Japanese martial arts. So let's just um, see some of this clip right here, for those of you who can. And your son must talk. Walk on the road. Hmm? Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Here, karate, same thing. Either you karate do yes, or karate do no. You karate do guess so. Just like grip. Understand? 
Yeah, I understand. Now ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. Must make sacred pact. I promise teach karate. That to my part. You promise learn. I say you do. No question. That to your part. Deal? Steal. Pause it, pause it there, right there. Pause it right there. Alright, so remember the scene? Daniel san Let's make sacred pact. I promise to teach karate. I say you do. Okay. What we're seeing is an expression of discipleship. And this is a toned down version. If any of you are familiar with the old school kickers movies, old school kung fu movies, like Snakey Monkey, Sh I used to love kung fu films, you know. Snakey Monkey Shadow, Junkin Master, all of that. I mean, obviously the Bruce Lee collection right there is, is, is historic. But what you see expressed in that culture is a picture of discipleship, where an individual commits themselves to follow the words and ways of their master. Daniel-san. And you notice that even Daniel-san, with his Western mindset, went to shake the brother's hand to seal the pact. But listen, they've made the pact. So who remembers what comes next? Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Now, what's that got to do with karate? The, the brother just promised to teach karate. And yet we see it's not just theoretical. It's not just specific to the action, but it's the whole lifestyle. It's the attitude. It's the mentality. It's, the, it's everything. The diet. The, the, everything that comes with that commitment to that particular way of life. Now, that's true discipleship. And here we see a very toned down initiation. I'm going to teach you karate, you're going to learn. Now, you have to be on this. No half and half. No walking in the middle of the road and get squished like grape. You have to be serious. Are you serious? Yes, I am. You committed? Yes, I am. All right, let's seal that. And so he takes his sacred bandana and ties it around his head. And he's marked now as a disciple. In terms of discipleship, the characteristics of discipleship in Christ are similar. The focus of our discipleship and the way in which we walk is different, undoubtedly. But the principle, the characteristics of discipleship in that it needs to be committed. It is such that you abandon your life to follow this way. The words and the ways of the master. And you see, in Jewish times, 
The rabbis would be known to be distinguished by the, the, the amount of disciples that followed them. And so you'd see rabbis walking down the road and they would have a trail of disciples behind them, watching their every move, watching every conversation they had, waiting for the words of wisdom to drop from their lips. And socially, those disciples would be no longer known as the son of whoever their dad was. But they were now the disciple of whoever the master was. And even socially, their identity changed. This is true for the Christian disciple. Entirely so. And this is what baptism represents as our entry point. So instead of the sacred bandana tied around our head, we get down into the pool. And in an open and visible sense, we are marked as a disciple of Jesus Christ, having abandoned our former way of life, given ourselves in committed submission to our master, to follow him always, to learn of him. And that's what disciple means, a disciplined learner. But again, it's not just academic as we see in our culture of learning. It's not just sitting in classrooms, but it's learning the life of the master. You eat when he eats. You drink when he drinks. You sleep when he sleeps. When he trains, you train. When he reads, you read. And that's what it means to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And so, in the same way that Daniel's son is now a, a disciple of Mr. Miyagi, and he's identified throughout the rest of the film and the trilogy or however many it was as being Mr. Miyagi's disciple, we are marked initially by baptism as being disciples of Christ, coming under his code. And following, following his conduct. And so baptism is a rite of passage. Baptism is the initiation ceremony, if you like. Now we see within our culture that such things are still consistent. There are a number of initiation ceremonies. You could be in the armed forces. And experience initiation into your platoon or your troop. You could be joining a fraternity or a club and experience initiation. Even in informal settings, we experience initiation in our culture. So on stag nights, they see it as an initiation into married life. That they do something to the groom. We've seen it very graphically in recent times with gang initiation. It's not enough to get the tattoo, permanent mark of your commitment. But you have to do something in order to qualify, to mark your commitment to the way of the gang. So whether it's to do a drive-by and shoot someone, or whether it's to go and rob someone, or, as in some gangs, 
to allow the whole gang to beat you senseless. Initiation is common in our culture. And this is what we see in baptism. It is an initiation into a way of life. Marking the abandonment of the former way of life. It is an identification of us as our master's follower. So we're now identified by that means. Have you been baptized? In the early church, if people weren't baptized, they weren't regarded as serious. They weren't, they weren't drawn into fellowship. Because, hold on, I mean, that's like basic. If you're a disciple, you do what disciples do. You get baptized. If you're a follower, then uh, how, how hard are you following if you can't even take the first step? And so you see in early church writing, some of the early church fathers, those who were in leadership after the apostles, you see them discrediting individuals who profess Christ without having been baptized. Now, are they saying that they're not going to heaven? No. But as far as we're concerned, as it says in the book of James, show me your saving faith by your works. If it's, if it's in your life and God has truly granted you faith and you've repented of your sin, then uh, standard, that's like basic requirement. You get baptized, right? So when the scripture talks about being baptized into, it's talking about being baptized into relationship and into the way of life associated with, i.e. the principles and practices, the codes and conduct, the words and way of your particular master. And so in this case, it's the Lord God. Now, I mentioned that there was four different types of baptism and we see that the principle is true for all of them. Now, understanding the meaning of baptism, we see that the principle is true for all of them. So Moses, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that the, the children of Israel were baptized into Moses. And it says literally into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The whole nation coming out of Egypt led by Moses, raised up by God, were now committed to follow the words and ways of Moses as given by God as they went through the sea and they had the cloud. And the sea and the cloud are representing re representation of the two aspects of believer's baptism, which I'll clarify shortly. Baptism with the Holy Spirit and with water. Jeez, oh my gosh. Listen, time won't permit So when it speaks about Moses being baptized into Moses, it was literally them being marked out by God as walking in the way of Moses. The great prophet raised up by God, speaking on God's behalf. And that was an endorsement of Moses, but it was also an endorsement of the people. The baptism of John. John came at a time when he was the first prophet after 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. God hadn't spoken to the people by the prophets for 400 years. 
They were doing their own thing. Mark those words. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he calls them to repentance. What does repentance mean? Well, you know the answer to that, I'm sure, if you were here. To turn away from your way and turn to God's way. So John called them to repentance because the nation were gone their own way. And as a mark of them demonstrating their repentance and their recommitment to the law of God and the lifestyle associated with the law, they were baptized. And they became known as John's disciples because John didn't have the full revelation. But he was preparing the people for the full revelation. So in order for you to be prepared for Christ, you know what? You've got to come to terms with the law. Oh my gosh. You know, I've had a long day already. <laughs> Lord, help me. The truth is same today. If people are really going to come to terms with Christ, they have to come to terms with the law. So, John the Baptist came with a, a baptism of repentance. Recommitting the nation of Israel to the law and the lifestyle associated with it. In preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, what do we see in Matthew 4? Jesus comes along, he sees John baptizing in the Jordan and what happens? It's alright, you can't talk to me now. What happens? He gets baptized. Now, why would Jesus get baptized? What would he need to repent of? Had he sinned in his youth? Got, got vexed one day? Broke up the chair that his dad was making? His stepdad? Forgive me. What did Jesus need to repent of? He didn't need to repent of nothing. But what he was doing, he was marking his submission to the law and the lifestyle associated with the law. He was saying openly, I'm submitted to the law. I'm a disciple of the law. And he said to John, when John complained, he said, look, do this that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Law's got to be upheld. And the people got to know that. And so he marked himself as a disciple of the law, endorsing the law and the lifestyle associated with it. And yet his intention was to fulfill the law on our behalf so that we would no longer need to have merely just a baptism of repentance, but we now experience baptism into the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, maybe I just need to do this over two weeks. Because I ain't trying to kill no one out here. And I still got some stuff to talk about. If we do it over two weeks, is it going to just distress the program? It's going to add an extra week to our thing. Is that all right? Don't leave none of it out. I already have, bruv. <laughs> I'm cutting as I go, bruv. What do you mean? All right, look. Let's just end with that thought. We see Jesus engage in baptism as a mark of his commitment and submission to the law and the associated lifestyle. And so this sets us up in helping us to understand 
the meaning of baptism. So when people ask into what name or in what name were you baptized as if it's some magic phrase, they're misunderstanding what baptism's about. Because what they're saying is, whose disciple have you become? Who are you following? Initiation, identification, registration, and recognition. That is what baptism represents. Next week, we will talk about believer's baptism. Baptism with the Holy Spirit, baptism with water. And we'll answer some of these questions. And let me just give you a preview. Leave you with a cliffhanger. Like Pastor Rob did with the guys in Jamaica. (laughs) Until the next time we come back, you know. (laughs) How does baptism symbolize the transition of life? What is it about going into water that symbolizes that transition of life? Why do that? Oh, when is a person baptized with the Holy Spirit? Do you need to tarry at the altar, as I was taught? Tarry means to wait long. Do you go to hell if you're not water baptized, as some people teach? Hello. Do you need to speak in tongues to prove you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Hello. Does someone need to lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Furthermore, whose name should I have been water baptized in? Hold on a minute. But is baptism with the Spirit the same as being filled with the Spirit? Hmm. Well, if you want the answers to those questions and other things, come next week, innit? <laughs> Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your your immense goodness. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have determined to separate to yourself a bunch of unworthy people and call them by your name. How unworthy are we? How great are you? That you would allow us to be identified with you as your people, as your followers, and that you would be committed to us to teach us your ways by your spirit and through your body, the church. Help us, Lord, as we develop a clearer identity of who we are. And Lord, I pray for anyone today who is outside of the fellowship of the saints, who are not accepted among the beloved because they have not repented and put their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that today they would be motivated, that Lord, they would be convicted, that they would be stimulated to do so and to join your family. And become one with your people, identified with you. Initiated into your plan and purpose during this time. Continue to have your way in our lives, we pray. Keep us, sustain us, strengthen us until next week, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.